0: Hey, good morning. I want to welcome you all across Northwest Georgia and into the Tennessee Valley. So Hickson, Dalton, Ringo, Chatsworth, Calhoun, thanks for sharing uh, your Sunday morning with us. We're delighted you're here. We continue our message series called The Struggle It's Real. We talk in some series at Rockbridge where we'll pick a topic or a passage of the Bible and we'll hang out there for a while. So this is our summer series where we're just talking about various things that we struggle with. So I never think it's too early to talk about the start of football season. And I know some of you would agree, but I want you to use your imagination, especially in like college, SEC uh, realm. Imagine like your team schedule comes out for the fall and you notice that your team (coughs) is always the road team. It's always the visitor team. It's always on the road. And then you click on like 2018 schedule, 19, as far as you can see, and you're always the road team. You're like, you never have another home game in, in the foreseeable future. And you can imagine the reaction. That's not fair. Uh, we're going to be terrible. There's no way we can be successful, especially in the SEC, if we're always on the road. That's just so tough. And whether, whatever your sport is, basketball, baseball, football, doesn't matter. You know that if you know anything about sports, kind it's just hard to play on the road. And that is sort of where we are with Christianity in the world today especially Christianity in America, because over the last 20 or 30 years, Christianity in America has sort of lost home-field advantage. We've lost it in politics. We've lost it in culture, society, in the media. Many of you would say, we've lost it in my family or my job. You know, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, you know, be the whole Christian thing. And, and so it's a struggle for us to know how to behave in a country that is probably no longer, quote-unquote, under God or as much as it once was to to whatever degree it really was. And so there's a struggle there as far as being a citizen of that. There's the struggle of, hey, I go to work and I'm I'm told I can't be kind of talk about Jesus or I'm not sure how to make a difference. And so there's a struggle that we're going to talk about today. And it is this struggle. It's the struggle that, hey, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a Christian. We're a church. We're in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world. Or the way I'm going to talk about it is we're kind of the road team that there's a kind of an uninterested or a hostile crowd that we're sort of dealing with now. Now, for some of you, you're like new to church or the reason you didn't come, you quit going to church or you're not even a Christian. And what you see is you see us Christians fumble this. Like we don't really know how to play on the road. We're, we're much better if it's, you know, in our holy huddle or we're much better when everybody thinks the way we think and everybody believes the way we believe and everybody votes the way we vote or everybody spends money or whatever. we t-shirts, the way we dress is the way we dress. So you've seen us fumble this. And let me read you a quote that describes this fumble. This is from an author. Her name is Anne Rice, where she writes, I, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but I, but not to being a Christian or to being a part of Christianity. It is simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome hospital, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. And and so that's some people's perspective of Christianity is we're like hostile. We don't really get along with a lot of things and we just always are disputing and it just doesn't seem to fit. And and so that's how some people view Christianity. And so we're just asking the question, how how do we do this? How do we struggle in the world, but not of the world? How do we make a difference in our culture when it seems like our culture isn't really interested in us making a difference? How do we make a difference in our family? I mean, is it, I, I just need to quit. Is, it, is Christianity all about just quit watching R-rated movies and stuff like that? Or do I have to move to the Congo and learn another language? How do we live in this world, and yet not be of it? How do we live as the road team for the foreseeable future? If you hear this talked about in the news, you know, you'll hear the words post-Christian or post-modernism and, and just moving sort of away from what some of us might have called at one point traditional values or the Judeo-Christian way of thinking. So, how do we exist in this kind of environment? Well, fortunately for us, and, and God worked it out this way, we're not the first people to have to debate this, discuss this. In fact, in the first century, when Christianity was a minority faith, and the government of Rome in most parts of the empire was either biased against Christianity or outright hostile toward Christianity. There were letters written that we can read today, learn from today, and we're gonna be in the book of First Peter, where Peter really addresses this. How do we live in the midst of a culture, a government, a society, a job, a community where maybe it's not as cool to be a Christian, or maybe we're not sure how, how to live or how to make a difference, and, and yet we think we're sort of supposed to make a difference. So how does it all kind of flesh out? If you have your Bibles. First Peter chapter two, we're going to read on the screen. you're welcome to turn, open your Bible up, turn your Bible on and follow along. Here is this word: I urge or dear friends he's writing to a group of Christians, "I urge you as strangers and temporary residents. Now notice the the title or the description that Peter gives these Christians. He's saying, look, look, you're not at home. He's basically saying you are the road team. You are the visitor team. You do not belong here permanently. So I urge you to abstain from the fleshly desires that wage war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. So the Gentiles would be our equivalent of a non-believer or a non-Christian. In fact, you know what the fastest growing faith in America is? Nuns. No faith, no religion, no religious affiliation. So notice what he says. Conduct yourself honorably among So we're not in a holy huddle. We don't just go to church, quote unquote, all the time. We're not sitting around in a circle waiting on the rapture. We are among the Gentiles. We're among the nuns. We're among the non-Christians. So that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, that people are going to talk negatively about Christ followers. They will, though, by observing, people have to see Christians live out the implications of their faith. By observing your good works, they'll connect the dots and they'll see the way you live, and they'll say there's something different, and they'll glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day when Jesus comes back. That's the reward. That's the vindication. That's, when Christians, that's what Christians ultimately hope for. So here's what Peter is going to instruct us to do in this struggle being in but not of. The first one is this. We have to realize and embrace the fact that the world is not our home. Most people, even people who are not Christ followers, realize that there's something wrong with the world. Most people realize that, hey, this world is not kind of what we want it to be. And you realize it when you watch the news and you see some tragedy or injustice. You realize it when you got to deal with divorces or deal with cancer or deal with job loss or, or deal with poverty. You realize it in so many ways. And so there is a natural homesickness that Christians ought to have. And non-Christians have it too because they're like, that's not right and this shouldn't be that way. So we all have this longing for justice and peace, this longing for uh, things to just work out the way we think they're supposed to work out. But what we oftentimes don't do is embrace the fact that we're the road team own it, embrace the fact that we're temporary, not permanent residents, and let that change our perspective and let that change our actions for how we b- behave here and how we live here on the world, that we need to own the fact that, hey, this, we're, we do better as a, an away faith or, or the visiting team, that we're temporary residents. And so what typically happens, though, is as Christians, or what can happen is we start to think this world is our home and we start to create expectations and we start to, you know, d- debate and try to make this world as comfortable as possible. Instead, we have to have the perspective that we are temporary residents and the world's not our home. For example, so I just got back within the last week or so from Ethiopia. When I am in Ethiopia, I do not expect Ethiopia to be America. I do not go around in Ethiopia complaining because I can't find a Chick-fil-A. Okay? I don't complain because it's not my bed or because their power grid is different than our power grid. I don't complain that I don't get a cell signal because Ethiopia is not where I'm from and I'm there temporarily. And so it changes my perspective. But here's what what happens to us if we're not careful and we think earth is our home and everything good that's coming to us needs to come in in our hundred years that we're here. That's when everything good's got to come in these hundred years where Peter would say no 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 Really the good you're going to get and the reward you're going to get is not going to be in this lifetime Whether you live 30 years or 100 years doesn't really matter It's the day of jesus's visitation that you live toward but what we do Is we start to burden our worldly experiences with heavenly expectations we think what we experience on the world in the world ought to be like heaven or the world is heaven and we try to make the world into heaven and that is a losing battle. We, and Christians have been fighting it since the first century. This world is not our home. So the worst thing we can do is go around here looking for Chick-fil-A when it's not been promised. The worst thing we can do is burden our worldly experiences with what heaven or what our heart expects heaven or the Bible tells us heaven is going to be like. So when Peter says, abstain from fleshly desires, the world appeals to your flesh in the the form of pleasure and power and positions and people-pleasing. The world appeals to that, and Peter says, don't get sucked into that. You cannot make the world heaven. Now imagine for just a second. Imagine if you and I lived with a heavenly home or a second-coming home perspective. Imagine, because, because we treat the world as our home and try to make it our home, it costs a lot of money. We tend to get bitter, cynical, and disappointed in ourselves, in our, in our society, and other people. And so we expend a lot of resources, and we expend a lot of emotional energy being mad, being frustrated, being cynical, being bitter, being disappointed, being depressed, because this world, stop. This world is not our home. And if we really owned this and understood this, it would free up emotional energy. It would free up time. It would free, it would give us margin. And so just like I, when we go on these mission trips, we go not overtly, to, we get something out of it, but our mission is not to get something. Our mission is to give something. God leaves you here in the world not to get something from the world, but to give something to the world. And when you realize the world is not your home and that you're going to get your due and the day of Jesus' visitation, then suddenly you don't go around looking for a handout and looking for somebody to take care of you and make you comfortable and pleasurable. Your life is suddenly postured to live for the good and for the blessing of other people. Amazing perspective that would shift. Second thing Peter would say, that we realize and embrace the fact that we are sent into the world. Every Christ follower has a sentness to their life. And we at Rockbridge use the phrase, love God, love others, live sent. That's how we describe the life of a Christ follower. Madly in love with God, loving other people, self Leslie and living sent to tell other people and demonstrate to other people who King Jesus is. And so we embrace the fact that we have been sent into the world and it's not an option for us. Now, here's the challenge for that. We run into like cultural biases, okay? So when I grew up, living sent meant you needed to be going and knocking on doors and and telling people turn or burn or if you're going to hell or you want to go to heaven and here's how to have eternal life that has its place. Some of you living sent means you got to get on an airplane and go across a cultural or a linguistic boundary. And, and, and other than that, if you're not doing one of those two things, you're not living sent. That's not the case. And that's not what Peter's going to talk about. So what Peter's going to talk about is that everybody is, spo- every Christ follower is supposed to live sent, but how we live sent is what's crucial. How? He doesn't get into where and and what. He gets into how you live your life as a sent person, as someone sent into this world to be among the Gentiles so they can observe how you live and connect how you live to the Father who loves you in heaven. So let's spend a little bit of time talking through how Peter coaches and instructs the believers to live sent. First off, we have to recognize this. I say this or a version of this a lot because it gets, this is so important, especially for us in the Bible Belt and for those some of you who have a bad perception of church. Our goal is more than morality, okay? There is a version of Christianity, and it's really big in the Bible Belt, that Christianity is about keeping rules and being moral and being ethical, Christianity has morality. Christianity has ethics. But if we don't embrace the fact that our calling, our senseness is not to go wag a finger in in the world and say, you better ship up or you're going to turn and burn, baby. We got to get past that. We're not a church like that, that we have a mission that God calls us to. So we have got to own the fact that you, you can't call yourself a good Christian if you just don't break the rules as you learn them. You're a faithful Christian if you have the character, if you're putting on increasingly the character of Christ, but you're also living sent into the world. So we have to understand the fact that the goal, your goal, if you're a Christian, your goal is not just to be a good person who keeps the rules and doesn't break the Big Ten. Your goal is to become like Jesus in your character, and your goal is to be sent. Your goal is to represent King Jesus, period. So how does that happen? So our goal is bigger than morality, and then the next thing Peter would say is we have to have discernible good works, good works that people can look at you and look at us and look at our churches and say, wow, they do good things. They do good things, and they, they, they detect the good we do in the context or the, peop- the times and the places in which we live. So to show you that Anne Rice, that quote I had in the beginning, that her perception of Christianity was wrong or is off or is not correct, I, I want to show you, like, I'm gonna, we're going to span about 2,000 years. I'm going to read a quote from someone in the 2nd century, someone in the 1700s, and then a little bit later, uh, someone in the, in the 21st century, to show you that Christianity throughout its history has been about performing discernible good works. So this first guy I'm going to read a quote from is an, a Roman emperor in the second century. His name was Julian, and his mission was to kill, persecute, and stop the spread of Christianity. That's his mission. Listen to what he writes. How can we stop the growth of these wretched Galileans? They take care of not only their own poor, but ours as well. is that amazing? So Christians take care of other Christians who suffer from extreme poverty But they also were taking care of the Roman Christians who suffered from extreme poverty. And if you go and if you read more of this document, Julian is like frustrated because he's attacking Christianity with the Roman sword and Christianity is fighting back with love. What still exists today? Does the Roman Empire still exist or does Christianity? So our weapons are a little different. They're discernible good works. Fast forward to the 1700s, and one of America's most famous pastors and theologians, a man named Jonathan Edwards, writes this. The spirit of charity, or Christian love, inclines or causes causes a person to be public-minded or public-spirited. This is old, kind of little middle old English. A man of right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly interested and concerned for the good of the community to which he or she belongs. You've heard this argument. Hey, I have my, my, my spiritual life and it's kind of at home and on the weekends and at church. And then I got to go out in public and I got to be this kind of person, this kind of businessman, this kind of athlete, this kind of teenager. And, and that's not Christianity. Christianity, there's no division between your public and your private. Is fully integrated and we're interested in the common good. So a man of right spirit is not a man of public and private views. He's interested in the good of the community that he belongs, and particularly he's interested in the city or village in which he resides. A man of truly Christian spirit will be earnest for the good of his country and the place of his residence, and will be inclined or motivated or inspired to lay himself out, to sacrifice himself or do not deny himself for it's improvement. So for the first 1,700 years, that faithful Christianity looks like doing good works so non-Christians can see what we do and, give, and correlate what we do with who we worship. Peter's going to continue, starting in verse 13, to continue to unpack how are we to live sin. And what he says is now going to get political, and it's going to get radical, and it's very appropriate for our 21st century political climate. Here we go, verse 13 submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Now, I want you to remember, this, he's not talking about Democrats or Republicans, but this would be included that we submit to Donald Trump as our president. And, and if that's hard for you or, or that's easy for you, it would, we'd flip it. Were, we were supposed to submit and respect Barack Obama as our president. It doesn't matter. Think about who they're talking about. They're talking about some men in the first century who had one big desire when it came to Christianity, kill them all. And yet Peter, who will be killed by the Roman emperor Nero when he's hung or crucified upside down, Peter says to the churches, submit to them. Submit to them. Work within the system. So Christians aren't anarchists. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, he continues to explain, or to governors as those sent out by him, by the emperor, to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will... Most of those who have followed Jesus have said, hey, what's God's will for my life? This is one of the few passages where he makes it very clear what's God's will. It's God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people or people who are not aware of the wisdom and the glory of God and the gospel, that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As God's slaves, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. So don't spend the freedom we have because of the grace of God to do evil and to complain and uh, go into your fleshly desires, but do good. So what's, Then what he goes on, he says, honor everyone. There's that phrase again, honor everyone, love the brotherhood or the family of believers, fear God, and he repeats himself. He knows this one's gonna be tough, honor the emperor. So what is he saying? First of all, he's saying Christians generally work within the world systems. So Christians are not to go create their own subculture where the only places you go and shop are like Lifeway and Christian Mingle is kind of your deal, right? You and I are designed to infiltrate culture. So we get involved with the economy, with the arts, with media, with sports, with business, with commerce, with education. We work within the system. That is what we see from Martin Luther King Jr. That is what we see from numerous Christians. We're not rebels or anarchists, overthrow. We're not isolationists who just hang out with us for and no more, baby. We are among the Gentiles. So let's go to the 21st century, and let me read from President George W. Bush, and you're going to see 2nd century, 1700s, and 2000s, the same thread of evidence that Peter teaches in 1 Peter. Here's President Bush. He says, Some in government believe there is no room for faith in the public square. I guess they've forgotten the history of this great country. People of faith led the struggle against slavery. People of faith fought against child labor. People of faith worked for women's equality and civil rights. Every expansion of justice in American history received its inspiration from men and women of moral conviction and religious belief. Do you see the continuity of this? And we have to ask ourselves, Rock Bridgers, and if you're a Christ follower, you have to ask yourself, is this the kind of Christianity I or we are presenting to our communities, to our coworkers, in our spheres of influence, because that's how we're supposed to be in the world and not of the world. Yeah, we're the road team, but Peter's given us a game plan to play it right on the road. Another way how we live, or excuse me, <coughs> how we how we live. Sent. We practice and show honor. We practice and show honor. So. Everybody that is in tune at all to public discourse in our country and even in our communities realizes there is a severe lack of honor toward other human beings. You can go to some of your social media posts and I don't do this because I'm not really on social media, but there is a severe lack of honor in how we talk to one another, about one another and what we post about on social media. What is honor? I elevate you above me. I put your interests and your concerns above my interests and my concerns. Now, where did the, do you honor someone because they deserve to be honored? Did the emperor deserve to be honored? I mean, he's killing Christians. No, do you know where honor comes from? The only place you can get honor is at the cross. You look at Jesus dying in your place and it humbles you, it breaks you, it convicts you. So how can you put yourself above anybody else when you caused him to die? But it doesn't leave you broken because he died for you and he was glad to do it. And so here's what that means. When you interact with another human being, one, you interact from a posture of humility and a posture of respect and love because Jesus saw fit to die for every single human being, black, white, Hispanic, rich, poor, Asian, North American, that you will ever lock eyes on. You want to make a difference in your job tomorrow? You commit yourself to practice and honor. You want to change the discourse in your family? You quit waiting for somebody to go first? You practice honor. You want to be salt and light on social media? You quit using it as a platform to condemn and criticize and spew your selfish opinions? You practice honor. That's salt and light. And and it all comes from the gospel. Honor the emperor. Honor everyone. End of discussion, according to Peter. Continues. So, we endure and we expect God's reward, not the world's. Listen, listen, listen. If you think the biggest reward you're going to get is your retirement, or the car, or the date, or the marriage, or, or, or something with Social Security, sorry. If you think the biggest reward is, hey, I'm going to have a long life, sorry. Nothing wrong with any of that. They just pale in comparison to what you're going to receive for being a faithful, persevering, to the end follower of King Jesus. So take all the hope that you have, that right now is going to get a date on Friday night, or take all the hope that you have that is going toward having uh, you know, a lot of money in the bank when you hit retirement age. Take all the hope that you have that's aimed at a wedding or, or aimed at a retirement party and just make sure you put it, it toward the second after you die and hope there more than you hope here, okay? I promise we won't be disappointed. Another thing to live sent is we have to be in a community of love. And basically, I'm saying you've got to be in the church. You have to be in the church. Listen to Hebrews, how Hebrews explains this, okay? Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see your reward approaching. Be faithful till he gets back. Be faithful till the second coming. Isn't it interesting what we've done in America, because we're such savvy consumers, is we've made the church about us, meet my needs, scratch my back, take care of me, me, me. My small group is all about me and making me feel good, and I, I need to have this, and I need to have that. And the church is all about me and my kids, and me, and me, and me, and me, and me. I'm not saying the church is not about helping us grow spiritually, but do you see what this tells us? The church and small group is really about spurring you and I on to be faithful in conducting our discernible good deeds in front of or among the Gentiles. The church is encouraging uh, each other to live sin. So let's ask our small group leaders and all of our small groups. I know we pray for one another. I know we pray for our relatives. I know we pray for our struggles with sin, but are we encouraging each other? Hey, how are you gonna show up Monday morning at work? In a spirit of honor or in a spirit of bitterness and frustration? Hey, you got a neighbor that you've never invited to church. We're praying you have that opportunity. How'd that go this week? Are we spurring one another on toward love and good deeds? I'm going to stop, okay, because here's some typical pushback, okay, and, it, and it's legit, and I want to unpack it a little bit. I'm just an ordinary person, and so I, I, all I can do is kind of pray, and I come to church, give a little bit, but I'm ordinary, and I don't think God, or I don't, I don't know that I can be used. And that's a problem in American culture because we take, American culture takes pastors and kind of makes us like super Christians and we have this celebrity Christian going on, like who's got the next conference and I get to go hear him speak and I get on their podcast and I'm gonna buy their video and all this kind of stuff. And who, oh, he's got a new book out. Oh, I just love him, love him. And what happens suddenly though, if we're not careful, is we suddenly think that there's people on a pedestal, like there's two versions of Christianity. There's the super elite and they're supposed to do all this stuff that we've written. Read here in 1 Peter, and then there's the rest of us, and we kind of get a pass. This book was written to all of us, okay? And, And let me just tell you if any of you have Matt Evans on a pedestal, let me help you with that, okay? Let me just help you with that. If you knew the sins I've done and some of the things that go through my brain, you would not let me up here, okay? But if I knew some of the sins you've done and what goes through your brain, we'd probably put security at the door before you got in so we're all on the same page, okay? All right, we all need Jesus, okay? So, so I need the blood of Jesus just as much as a Muslim terrorist, okay? I need the blood of Jesus just as much as Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, and so do you, okay? So listen to what Peter says about those people who would disqualify themselves because they're just a little bit too ordinary, household slaves. He's going to tell a household slave. Now, don't think about American slavery. It's completely different in the first century, but he's going to tell a household slave how to live sent, okay? He says, submit with all fear to your masters, not only to the good masters and gentle ones, but to the cruel ones as well. For it brings favor. If mindful of God's will, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit We're looking at a reward. Who's going to reward us? God is. For what credit is there if you sin and are punished and you endure the consequence of your sin? That's kind of what he's saying. But when if you do what is good and suffer, being a household slave who does good for a cruel master, if you endure it, this brings favor or reward with God. So Peter talks to someone whose society might say, you can't make a kingdom difference. He says, no, no, you can do good where you are. Do good whatever position or platform God gives you. We all have different platforms. Mine, Part of mine's standing up here. Part of mine's as a father. You could be a businessman, a student. Some of you may be a maid or a servant. That's okay. You can do good. And I want to give you a, a 20th, 21st century illustration. This lady named Is- Isabel. She was a, an immigrant from Chile. And she became a maid in some wealthy homes in California. Okay, and, and they said, how, "'How do you make a difference for God?' And she says, "'Well, it's simple. I pray for every home I go into, and I believe God will use me, and if not me, he'll use someone else.'" And she says this in the book of Genesis. I see where God brought order out of chaos. That's what I try to do for every home I go in when I go in to clean it. I see in John 13 where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and he served people from a posture of humility. So she says, when I'm cleaning a toilet, I'm doing it for the glory of God because I'm bringing order and I'm washing people's feet. And then she goes on and they say, well, do you ever encounter brokenness? She says, oh, yes, yes. She says, the homes I go into are rich outside, but a lot of times empty on the inside. And here's where she says, the Lord is teaching me. She says, we're all immigrants. We're all immigrants. Because if this world is not our home, we're immigrants. And our home, our real home is with Jesus, with God. So we should be showing others his love and mercy and how much he loves those whose lives are broken by addressing very practical needs in her platform, that's cleaning houses and cleaning toilets. We show them, other people, live among the Gentiles, among the non-Christians, the one who makes everything new. Please listen to me, church. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your present is. Do not disqualify yourself from living sin and doing good works wherever you're positioned right now in your life. Do not say, my job doesn't matter. Do not say that. Do not say, God can't use someone like me. Please, please don't say that. That is so against the heart of God. Because let me tell you, do you know how Christianity advances? Ordinary people, ordinary people, Living with extraordinary, like Isabel, like the household slaves in verse 18. Ordinary people living with extraordinary intentionality. That's how it advances. Ordinary people who have nine to five jobs or weekend jobs. Ordinary soldiers, ordinary business people, ordinary teachers and ordinary coaches. and Ordinary pastors and ordinary retired people and ordinary students with extraordinary intentionality. Give you a couple handlebars to kind of give you eyes to see some possibilities, okay? This comes from a pastor in North Carolina named Tony Merida. First one is this. Think about being a voice, and the word is advocate. There are people in this world who do not have anyone to speak up for them. Maybe your burden, your passion, maybe an opportunity in your position is you can be a voice. This could be everything from a foster child to someone in extreme poverty to the unborn. Be a voice. Secondly, think about opening up your home or opening up your heart. How can you use radical hospitality? See, we've shifted from big front porches to really big backyards with fences okay? And and so we need to think about that in relation to Christianity, which is a religion or a faith of hospitality. So have you had an immigrant in your home? Have you taken a new person, new to church, new to your job, new to your community? Have you taken them out had them over? Have you opened up your home? I mean, we have children in this community living in horrible situations that the federal government classifies them as homeless Okay, we can open our hearts and homes there. The opportunity is all around. I'm so encouraged when I talk to rock bridgers because there's this, what I'll call organic. Organic means we're not really saying anything. I'm not leading this. I'm just, we're just praying. There are many rock bridgers who are going into foster care. Praise God for you. I am praying for you because that is the heart of God. Okay, another example or another set of eyes. Learn to look at the world through the eyes of a good father. So when I look at my kids, you know, I see things that can hurt them. I see where they hurt. I see where they need encouragement. I don't do it really well. I mean, I do the best I can. But God's a good father. So when you look at the world, you can know what grieves God because he's a father. And, and see where that leads you. Okay? Now, there's an enemy that we need to face and we need to reckon with. Okay? All right, and I'm going to illustrate it this way. They, there was a, they, this, they were doing a study. They pulled in a bunch of people who were in seminary, seminary people who were training to, quote, be pastors and, and uh, ministers in, in the church. And they asked them kind of why they went in seminary and all this kind of stuff. And they said, look, some, group A, you're going to go over and you're going to talk about the value of having trained ministers in the church. Group B, you're going to cross the street. Everybody had to cross the street to go to this uh, lecture hall. You're going to lecture on the Good Samaritan, okay? And so they, they sent them over and kind of one by one or in small groups. And they had staged an actor who was acting hurt and very poor on the way. And so every, every one of these seminary future ministers had to pass by this actor. They didn't know he was acting and they were trying to correlate who would stop and who wouldn't. Now you would think the people that would stop were the people who had the good Samaritan on their mind, but that wasn't necessarily the case were the people who said they were going into church work to help other people. That wasn't the case either. They had given two sets of instructions to one group of people. They said, you're late. And and the lecture's about to start. You got to get over there right now. And then one group of people said, hey, take your time. You got about 30 minutes. Make your way on over to the lecture hall. The group of people that stopped to help the person was not the group of people who had the Good Samaritan on their mind necessarily. It was the group of people that was not in a hurry. So there's an enemy to intentionality and it's busyness and hurry. Busyness and hurry. So if your life, moms, dads, career people, retirees, if your life is one hectic, running from here to there mess, you're probably missing your calling. Some of you need to create a stop-doing list this afternoon. Well, I know, I know your kid may not be the next Michael Jordan, okay? Okay. but your kid was created to be salt and light, okay? So, that's the calling we share. That's the calling we have. That's how to live in the world and not of it. And then to close out his case, Peter does what's so beautiful, and this is where I'd like to have our minds go. He just shines a light on Jesus. Here's what he says. For you were called to this, this kind of life, Listen to me. If you're a Christ follower, you have a calling. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example so that you should follow in his steps. So he's like, you've got to live the way Jesus lived. This is not like Jesus is my ticket to heaven. Jesus is how I live my life. He did not commit sin, or excuse me, um, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So when they made fun of, criticized Jesus, he didn't do in return. I met a former Muslim in Ethiopia. I'm walking down a mountain with him. I said, tell me how you became a Christ follower. And he said, I watched Christians get persecuted and oppressed and beaten, and they didn't retaliate. They said, God bless you. And it woke up his heart to the reality of Jesus. When he was suffering... He did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. In other words... We threaten and we get angry when we feel like something's being taken from us in this world. Jesus entrusted himself because his reward came from his Father in the, in the new kingdom, in the new heavens. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we can now live for righteousness. Having died to ourselves, having died to our big eye, we live for righteousness. You have been healed by his wounds, for you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So Jesus becomes our illustration, how to live, and our substitution. He took our place on the cross. When you see Jesus as these two things, what comes out of you supernaturally is this. Use me. Use me. Use me. I'm called. Use me. Let's pray together. God, let us all of our eyes, the eyes of faith, the eyes of our heart, just be on Christ right now. God, um, get our eyes off our schedules, get our eyes off our past, get our eyes off our performance, and Lord, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus for just a moment. And Jesus says, we look at you, we realize you died in our place. You yourself bore our sins in your body on the tree. We look at you, Jesus, and we realize it's not enough just to believe facts about you. We are to follow in your very footsteps gladly and as an overflow of joy because you took our place on the cross. God, I pray a prayer over this church right now that this church has faithfully for several years now been serving in the community and serving overseas. I would just ask God that you give us a fresh wind of your spirit to be a sent people in Hickson, in Ringgold, in Dawson, in Chatsworth, in Calhoun, and to the ends of the earth. And thank you, Jesus, for the privilege and honor of being sent to represent you, and to declare you as the answer, as the treasure, as the portion of people. Be our portion, be our prize this morning. In your name we pray, Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.